0: Father in heaven, we pray that your hand of blessing might be very evident in that which is accomplished in our hearts and lives tonight. We know that we touch on a very vital and important part of the discipling process. We just praise you for the privilege we have of studying these things together, and we just pray that you will help us especially to accomplish in these moments before us. Those things that would most please you will praise you for it in Christ's name. Amen. You recall that um, a number of months ago, as we are really longer than that, um, we talked about uh, uh, the purpose, one of the purposes of discipleship was that of reproduction so that there might be multiplication in the church rather than merely addition. Remember in the early days of the church, It says, and 5,000 and 3,000 and then 5,000 were added onto the church, and then there were others that were added onto the church, such as should be saved. And then after an incident there in Jerusalem, it says, and the number of, of disciples multiplied. The difference between addition and multiplication was the difference between the apostles doing the work and thus adding to the church and the apostles eventually equipping the saints for the work of the ministry so that every Christian was involved in the reproductive process. And that's of course why Paul exhorted Timothy uh, to uh, take the things that he had learned from many faithful witnesses and commit them to faithful men who shall be able to teach others And the Greek tense uh, doesn't end there. It goes on continuously to teach others, to teach others, to teach others, to teach others, to teach others. That's the ministry of multiplication. The only way, really, that we will ever reach the world for Jesus Christ is for everyone to be a witness. And so now we have taken, first of all, in the life of Christ and in the Gospels, we saw the development of discipleship as taught by example of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. In the book of Acts, we saw how that discipleship then was carried out in various aspects of their ministry and how the discipling of men continued. And then we, having taught what the scripture teaches about the principle of discipleship, we then have turned in this last section to talking about particular, a particular procedure that we could have, having one a person to Jesus Christ to lead him somewhat to maturity in Christ. It's been our purpose simply to give you an outline, a little idea of some of the things that can be accomplished. You, of course, have to embellish on that. Use your own uh, mind and uh, your own materials and uh, just work it out. But I, we're suggesting ten appointments that you could have and 10 different subjects that you could cover with a disciple. I'm sure that if you're really concerned about that person, you'll want to go beyond 10 and uh, you probably want to elaborate on each one and there are probably a lot more things you want to teach them. It would be ideal, I suppose, if we could uh, spend two or three years with each one and uh, really get him nurtured and in the things of the Lord. I think that it depends, it really depends on how well he integrates into the Christian community, how um, quickly he catches on to methods of Bible study, and how he matures in the time that you spend with him. How long you want to continue to meet with him on a regular basis. There may still want to uh, be maybe a monthly meeting, maybe you've met with him weekly up to this time, um, or bi-weekly. And maybe now you'd like to meet with him monthly or bimonthly or every quarter, something like that, just to continue to keep touch and nurture him. And then, of course, both of you get involved in discipling someone else. Now that's, of course, what we're after. And we hope that some of you, and we know some of you, already have begun. And we, we hope that some of the rest of you will really get involved in this. The lesson that we have tonight is really a twofold thrust. We first of all want to talk about the fact that we should share with the person very early in his salvation, after his salvation, we should share with him how he personally can lead another to Jesus Christ. Never give the new believer the idea that he has to wait until he's as mature as you are before he can start winning souls. It's simply a fact, he that wins souls is wise, and he that doesn't is otherwise. And therefore, you have to uh, impress upon him the, the principle of multiplication, as I have already here tonight. Now, there really are two things, then, that, that we need to do in reference to leading others to Christ. And we want to talk about both of them tonight. And again, I want to tell you, we are not in any way teaching a course on evangelism thoroughly in this one class. We can't do that. But we want to do two things. First of all, give you just some ideas as to methods of evangelism that could be used. And how you, simple methods, really, that you could put into his hands and he could begin using right away. Secondly, we want to talk about how to give a testimony. Testimony is one of the most important, an evangelistic testimony is one of the most important means of influencing another for Jesus Christ that we could possibly have. And I dare say that most people don't really understand themselves how to make up a testimony, how to to, to follow uh, an outline and uh, have down your personal testimony. So we wanted to share that with you. And uh, perhaps if we have time, we'll even have some of you uh, share testimonies or at least parts of testimonies so we can put the pieces together. We've got a lot to cover. Now, in reference to soul winning, and this is going to be very brief. There are lots of methods you can use. I don't know what your favorite one is. It might be good to use the method that you used in bringing this person to Christ and teaching him how then to use that. It obviously was effective because you led him to Christ, and he's followed through on the discipleship course right here through the ninth appointment. And so therefore, you apparently have been successful. So whatever works for you, that's the best method. For you, for at least that particular person. And I, I, I don't suppose that in leading people to the Lord, I don't know how many, I never kept notches on my Bible, so I don't know how many people I've led to the Lord, but uh, uh, in leading people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, I don't suppose that I've ever used the same method twice in a row in my life. Simply because every situation is a little, differently, is a little different, and you approach it a little differently but just some simple methods. Uh, one method that I learned as a child and won someone to Christ when I was just uh, 10 or 11 years old was the ABCs of salvation. ABC, A standing for admit that you're a sinner. B, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose from the grave. C, confess Jesus Christ as your Savior. Now, that's a very simple a little method, and you can get a lot of gospel in between. But the reason it's so good is because it has uh, points that you can remember. And if you have something to hang your hat on, you won't find yourself speechless in the face of some of the questions that come along. Those are three things that are very definite, uh, definite elements. Now, with each of these, you add scripture, of course. And uh, you, you first of all admit that you're a sinner, like Romans three twenty-three, for all of sin to come short of the glory of God. Maybe you want to go a little further, Romans six twenty-three. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord, and so on. Uh, you, you can just fill in the Scripture. Believe, uh, obviously, John three sixteen is always a handy one. And uh, the first person I ever led to Christ as a boy, that's all the scripture that I could remember, it was just John 3.16, and the boy accepted Christ as his Savior as a result of just concentrating on that one verse that I was sure of. I knew some other verses, but I forgot them in that moment of tension in the, by the woodpile in the uh, barn. And... Uh, The result was that all I could remember was John 3.16, but I couldn't forget that. And the result was, I led him to Christ. Now, after you get a little sophisticated, then you have the CBAs of salvation. Because ABC, you know, is uh, easy to remember, so is CBA. And actually, probably a little more accurate, confess that you are a sinner, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, and ask Him to simply come into your life. Now that's another method that can be used. Again, Scripture can be added to all of those. I'm assuming something with you, you won't assume that with your disciple. I'm assuming that you already know enough to lead a person to Christ, and so these are just some simple methods, and you can add whatever you wish. Campus Crusades for spiritual laws is always appropriate, very excellent, a very good means of not only teaching a person the steps uh, to finally making that personal decision for Christ, or that which is involved in making the decision. But it also, if you, it, it comes in a nice little booklet form, which means that you can just simply go along and leaf through the pages, and especially for a new convert, it's handy to have this. Warn him, however, first of all, that there are more than four spiritual laws, obviously. These just happen to be four of the spiritual laws. Secondly, don't let him think that just waving the Four Laws book over someone's head is going to bring them to Christ. So some people that use it almost like a fetish. I talked to a, a man that was a pastor, actually, and I had talked with a kid who denied that he knew anything about salvation at all. Of course, kids will play games with you. This was at a camp where I was in, involved in leadership, and so I mentioned it to the pastor who was, who was uh, in the cabin and I said to him, I said, uh, this boy claims that he, that he doesn't really understand the gospel, and I just suggest that you spend some time with him. And the pastor says, well, I gave him the four laws. You know, as if you give somebody the four laws, they must automatically be a Christian. Now, don't get that impression, and don't give that impression. And be very, very careful that you nurture him along, that the four spiritual laws is a method, a good method. But it's only as good as what you make it to be in bringing that person to a decision. It's the Holy Spirit that ultimately must do the work. I think I almost prefer the little booklet we put in the packets, the visitor's packets, which is made up by the guys at Dallas Seminary, How to Have a Happy and Meaningful Life. It's a little different than, than the Four Spiritual Laws, but it has the same basic format. A happy and meaningful life begins with God is the first point. And it goes on from there. Man's sin has separated him from God. Give some illustrations. God loves you very much. He gave Jesus Christ his son to take away your sin. For to enter into a happy and meaningful life, you must turn to God by trusting Jesus Christ to forgive your sins. Then it tells you what faith is. Then it reviews the whole thing. Then it has a suggestion as to a little prayer that could be used at the end. Now... That's just a, really a, an effective little tool. Carry a few of them in your pocket. Suggest this to him. And uh, when you're talking to a person, let me share, share with you a little booklet that's been meaningful to me. And then open it up and just go right through. Now, those are baby steps. I don't like to use booklets, frankly. I like to use the book. And I think that this is key. You never want to use booklets to the exclusion of using the book. And I would say that what I would do is work out, if I were were a new convert working with the book, the booklet, then I think what I would do is I would memorize uh, the steps that are involved in the booklet I'm using. And after I've gone through the booklet with the person so that he understands it the way it is with its nice little illustrations and all the rest, then I would go back over that territory simply using the Bible and reiterating all of those points once again. There is really an effective ministry in just opening your Bible, turning from passage to passage, having them point to it, having them read it, having them read it out loud. All of these things are methods that can be used. Again, I don't want to get into an evangelism class tonight. We've taught that before. We'll teach it again, but that's not the purpose of our study here. Another good one is what's called the Roman Road to Heaven. Some of you have used that and uh, what you do is you simply go through the book of Romans and you pick out key verses. To begin with, there are a couple of verses in Romans 1 that could be used relative to the lostness of the, of the heathen and lostness of men in general. Then Romans 3.23, Romans 6.23, Romans 10.9 uh, and 10 and so on. And you use these various various uh, verses in the book of Romans. And you can lead a person not only to come to know Christ, but lead them right through into what a victorious Christian life is in Romans 6, Romans 8, passages like that, and consecration in Romans 12, and living the Christian life in the rest of Romans 12, and Romans 13 and 14, the weaker brother, and uh, the whole scene. Say you can go right through the book of Romans, just picking out key thoughts and sort of giving a salvation and growth survey of the, the Book of Romans. So that's very key, and uh, I think that you'll want to uh, get involved in some kind of a method like that to help them. Now, there are several things, though, that <clears throat> I just want to mention, without looking up Scripture or anything else, uh, just so you have this down in your own mind, I want to to say there are several, no matter what method you use, there are several elements that should be present in any method. And that's why you have to elaborate on the ABCs of the gospel, the CBAs of the gospel, the Roman road to heaven, all of the rest of the methods. You have to usually elaborate on it a bit to make sure that these key points are covered. First of all, there must be an emphasis on the lostness of man. Now, some people already know they're sinners. There are others that won't admit it, even though they may know it. And there are some that really don't think they are. They simply compare themselves with someone else, maybe even a Christian, as to morality and a lot of other things. And then they say, I'm as good as he. Why do I have to be saved? So what you have to do is, if you are going to teach anything at all concerning the losses of men, you have to teach something concerning the holiness of God. And you may just pass over it. Just simply say, God is perfectly holy, and because God is perfectly holy, he must maintain a perfectly holy standard. Have you been perfect, or have you ever made a mistake? Well, if they say they were perfect, then you go back to the drawing board and give them a little more information concerning what the holiness of God involves, a perfect standard. They'll say, I try to keep the Ten Commandments. Well, then that's fine. Start with the Ten Commandments like Christ did with a rich young ruler. It's a great place to start because all you have to do is show that Jesus Christ taught that uh, adultery is not only wrong, but whoso looketh on a woman to, to lust after her committed adultery already in his heart. Or being angry with your brother is the equivalent of murder. You can find that in the Sermon on the Mount in the early chapters of Matthew, Matthew 5 through 7. You don't really have to uh, work too long on that before you finally get the guy to the place that he realizes he's a sinner, especially compared to God. And when you realize God has a perfect standard that can never be met except in Jesus Christ, you know you have a good, safe point. It's not a matter of balancing bad works against good works. God doesn't use a balanced scale. He compares you to perfection. And if you fall short, then you're lost. So after you've convinced him of the lostness of man, there has to be an emphasis on the grace of God and salvation as a free, free gift. G-R-A-C-E. How about that? No power. I'm not plugged in. That's the reason. And now I can't find my pencil. Here we are. Got all kinds of them here somewhere if these work. G-R-A-C-E. God's riches at Christ's expense. At this juncture, I like to always use an illustration concerning a gift. The fact that you don't work for a gift, you don't earn a gift, a gift is given, or it's not a gift. If you have to earn it or pay it back, it's not really a gift grace is only grace if it's an absence of works. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is a good passage to use there. Some people <coughs> like to say, but I, I want to give myself. This is why the emphasis on grace. I tried to give myself to God. I tried to give him uh, my, my, my family and give him everything I have, and so on and so forth. And you want to take them very gently at that point and say, listen, you have nothing to offer God. Remember, because of your imperfection, God's holiness, you cannot offer God anything. Therefore, God doesn't want you to give yourself to him. At least not at this point. He wants to give you something. And there's a far cry of difference between those that give themselves to God, or try to, and those, uh, there, there's a, God presses the reject button whenever a sinner tries to give himself to God. He can't give himself to God. He's not, got nothing to give and he has no strength to give. But God says, I want you to receive something. You know the difference between giving and receiving? Now, God does the giving, you do the receiving. If, it's, if you're the other way around, then you're trying to be God. See? And the result is that the person suddenly realizes, I can't do anything. I can't give. It's grace, all the way grace. I'm not giving myself to God, but rather I'm receiving something from him. And at that point, I like to pull a coin out of my pocket sometimes and just ask them if they have the ability to take this coin. Use a check to make sure it's not too big a coin. No. <laughs> I have a friend that uh, uh, works in, uh, a friend of my father's really, I don't know him now that well, but he, uh, he worked, works or worked, I'm not sure he's still living, in the University of Portland Hospital, in a uh, University of Oregon Hospital in Portland. And he carries a whole pocket full of pennies with him. And a person's laying there dying, you know. And he'll say, he'll say to them that if you um, have the strength to take this penny, you have enough strength left to receive God's gift of salvation. Can you take it? They'll reach out and they'll take the penny. And then he'll he'll say to them, now if you can do that, then you have enough faith, enough. You trusted me enough to take the penny from me. It's yours. You can keep it. But now I want you to simply say, Lord Jesus, I now receive your gift. And he leads hundreds of people, many times terminal patients, to the Lord there in that hospital. And uh, that's why he uses pennies, because he can go broke, you know, running around there. I think he's on a faith ministry, and, and if he were using dollars, boy, he'd be in tr- five-dollar bills. That'd really wipe him out. So use a quarter. Or use I like a quarter because there's some value to it. A penny's a little too little, but uh, it's worth a quarter to bring someone to Christ. And let them just simply reach out and take it. And then say, that's what I mean. You didn't give me anything for the quarter. I give you the quarter, you see. All right. Now, the, the third thing, uh, by the way, I've got to insert this. Some of you, some of you know uh, the background. I remember the story concerning our friend Michael um, from Israel. And the fact that in Israel, I tried to give him my watch to illustrate salvation and grace. And he would not take it. Because he said, no, I'll pay you for it. I said, no, you won't pay me for it. And he wouldn't take it. I, I still have that watch. And uh, so uh, the, the sequel to the story is this, that Michael, Michael told me Wednesday morning that, uh, was it Wednesday morning? Tuesday morning. Tuesday morning. Yesterday morning. We were standing out in front of, the, out in front of our house waiting for Grover Sinsley to pick him up, take him fishing. They got skunked, by the way. Uh, <laughs> uh, but that uh, th- th- didn't matter a bit to me because Michael said, said to me, he said, all week long we've been talking about receiving Messiah. And he said, you only receive Messiah once, right? And that's enough. And I said, that's right, Michael. He said, well, after you left, when you tried to give me my, give me your watch, he said, I couldn't sleep. And he said, I gave, I, I, uh, I received Messiah. And he said, S- my problem now is not receiving Messiah, but I must know more about him and grow. So uh, we have every reason to believe that Michael is on his way to heaven. And his biggest concern now is Ada, his wife, who has no interest in spiritual things at all. And he's had a hard time communicating to her because he didn't really understand all that's taken place in his life. If everything works out and if you pray real hard, Michael will be with us again next Sunday. He doesn't want to leave. Uh, <laughs> he's, he wants another Sunday. And uh, his only regret is that Ada couldn't be with him. He's just so moved by the love that the people here sh- have shown. So he's still hanging around. And we'll be praying for him. But nevertheless, we've had some good talks. But you see, that was a case in point where, where this was a terrific way to try to illustrate. And one of the first things I did when Michael got here was I gave him a watch. And uh, I told him, I said, this time you're going to take the watch. And uh, he, he smiled, and see, this was the connection that he made. See, he was regretting all that time not having taken the watch simply because, we talked about it again last night as we went for a walk, and, and uh, he could see that uh, to refuse the watch um, this second time, would be the equivalent of saying, no, I don't want your Savior. He had put the illustration together as he laid there in his bed and realized, uh, as he as he uh, put it, how stupid I was, you know, and uh, so on. Because he said, you loved me and you wanted to give me a watch, and God loved me and he wanted to give me a son, and I wouldn't take either one. That's what it amounted to. And uh, he's, you know, put it together in his mind. And so he received the watch and then watched for the opportunity to tell me, that uh, he had received the Messiah as well. So uh, that's, that's just a good illustration. Use anything you've got. Get them to take it. Whatever you do when you're done with the illustration, don't take it back. That's the important thing. That blows the whole illustration. You make them keep it. So you better be sure you're willing to part with it or you'll spoil the whole illustration. All right. I didn't want to get into all this, but it's too exciting. I love to point people to Christ, don't you? And uh, it's, it's so fun to talk about it. All right, there must be an emphasis, thirdly, on the finished work of Christ. That includes his virtuous life, the fact that he was sinless, his vicarious death, substitutionary death, the fact that he died for our place, uh, in our place, for our room instead, and then his victorious resurrection. They need to know those three things. Christ was perfect. he didn't. He was the only man that never deserved to die. So he had the ability to die a substitutionary death and since he had the ability to die a substitutionary death God then could raise him from the dead or as it says in another passage he raised himself from the dead proving that he was who he claimed to be. So we have to believe in our heart that, God, uh, that Christ died and that God raised him from the dead. All of that is involved. So you need to talk to him about those things as well. Fourthly, there must be an emphasis on biblical faith as a means of receiving God's gift of salvation. Faith is the absence of works. F-A-I-T-H. F-A-I-T-H. Empty hands, forsaking all. I trust him. It's as simple as that. That's faith. And that's a good acrostic to use in pointing someone to Christ. Now, faith involves repentance. Because faith involves reliability. And and repentance simply means to change your mind. And see, a person has to change his mind concerning sin. He has to change his mind concerning the nature of salvation. He has to change his mind concerning who Jesus Christ is. He has to change his mind concerning what Jesus Christ did. That is repentance. And of course, turning to Christ causes one to turn away from other things. It is an automatic response. In turning to Christ, there are certain things that are shed off. But don't emphasize the fact that he has to get rid of his sin. Some people teach repentance as though you have to get rid of your sin and then you can come to Christ when you're good enough. That's a very discouraging concept and it's not biblical. Change their mind. Remember, the Holy Spirit came to convince the world of sin. But then it tells us what sin he came to convince them of of sin because they believe not in Me. That is the sin of which they must repent. The repentance comes in turning to Jesus Christ. It is a change of direction. As they repent, they are converted. When they repent, change their mind concerning Christ and put their faith in Him, then there is the change. Now I, I, I use uh, many, many times numerous different illustrations about the element of faith. You do not want to give people the idea that intellectual assent or belief in the mind is enough. There's a lot of people that believe about Christ and do not believe in him, have not placed their confidence in him. And the word faith, pistuo, as we've seen before, means to place confidence in. Like you pay, place faith in the bench when you came and sat down. You don't know who the manufacturer of the bench is? You weren't sure when you sat down it was going to hold you. But having found that it does hold you, you relaxed, you see, and that's what a person must do with Jesus Christ. The best illustration, I think, that is easily repeatable is the story of Blaudine, who threw a cable across uh, Niagara Falls, walked across the cable numerous times, uh, did all kinds of things. He went out to the middle, sat there in in a little one-legged stool with a one-legged table and ate his lunch out there in the middle of Niagara Falls, swaying back and forth in the wind. He wheeled a wheelbarrow across. Got to the other side where the crowd was cheering during the Depression days. He was doing all of this. Everybody was looking for something to take their mind off their troubles. And he was a great entertainer. And he got the cheering crowd calmed down. And he said, how many believe that I can, that I can wheel a man across in the wheelbarrow? Everybody cheered. Of course they believed it. He said, who will be first? Suddenly he found that he did not have believers at all. He had people who intellectually acknowledged that he probably might be able to sort of do that. But he did not have any believers. Until finally one man stepped from the audience, got into the wheelbarrow, and he wheeled him across. That man had faith. And that is the element that you have to explain carefully so that they get the difference between saying in your mind, I believe the facts of this and making it personal, where they're willing to rest their case in what Jesus Christ can do. All right? And then fifthly, there must be, and this leads us to our next point, there must be some kind of verbal acknowledgement of what one actually has done. Sometimes it's just as well to tell them what you did and give your testimony at this point. Sometimes you will want them to repeat a prayer after you. A sample prayer could be, as I put here, Dear Heavenly Father... I know that I'm a sinner and deserving of just punishment, but through your word I've come to realize you love me enough to send your son Jesus Christ to earth not only to live a perfect life, but to die in my place. I believe that you raised him from the dead, proving that he was who he claimed to be, the son of God. Right now I am believing on him and I receive your gift of eternal life through him. Thank you for what you've done for me. You'll notice that every point I've made is in that prayer. Every point and that's what you want to do. Whatever you do in pointing a person to Christ, you want to make certain that they include then those elements in their prayer so that they are acknowledging this. What I usually do, if a person is, is tense and awkward, I'll say, would you pray this prayer? And maybe sometimes they'll start and they'll say, I can't remember what to say. And I'll say to them, all right. After two or three attempts and, and failure, I'll say, what I'm going to do then is this. I'm going to say a prayer, phrase by phrase, and if you can pray that prayer and mean it in your heart, if you agree with what I am saying, then I want you to repeat it. If not, I want you to stop me. Give them an out, because you may have to clarify a point, and then pray a prayer similar to this. Use your own but get those elements of salvation in it so the person actually acknowledges that he believes that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and so on. Now, one of the most effective evangelistic tools that we have at our disposal is something that should come rather easy to us, and that is a personal testimony of what Christ has done for us. Now, most people do not have any idea as to where to start in developing an effective evangelistic testimony. Actually, it's relatively simple. I think we make it complicated by a lot of superfluous details that only confuse the issue. A three-to-five testimony ought to be enough. Three-to-five minute testimony. Avoid talking too much. Avoid giving too much information in the testimony. Stick to the point at hand. It's good to memorize the testimony. Then if you want to spin off of that a bit, uh, you can do that. But primarily, have the testimony clearly in your mind. I want to just share something with you. When you give your testimony is very, very crucial. And I would say that that you might work it into your salvation presentation. We're going to suggest to you three points before salvation, what happened at salvation, and what happened afterward. That's a simple matter. And uh, Gary Kuhn, in his very fine book on personal follow-up, uh, has suggested those three points, and I don't think they can be improved on because, as I'll show you in a moment, they're very biblical. And what you want to do then is is just simply take the opportunity to to share these things at some juncture so that in the course of pointing a person to Christ, you have shared what your life was before you were saved, What? took place, or how this, what the circumstances were that led up to bringing you to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. And finally, what has happened to you since? Avoid subjectivity. You hear me? Avoid subjectivity. Words like, I feel, uh, I think, I hope, these kind of things throw the issue off. Say the things you know to be true. This is the way I was. This is what took place. And this is what's happened since. Make it very objective. Take a piece of paper uh, when you get home tonight, and write down these three points, and write down some numbers under them, sort of like we have in uh, the notes we gave you there. Maybe about five, six, seven points on each one. And just write some key words. And then from those key words, write your testimony. Um, just spinning off of this for a moment before we get down to the nitty-gritty of it, attitudes and actions before I became a Christian, circumstances surrounding my conversion, changes that took place when I received Christ. Now, Gary Kuhn uh, has some very excellent points. For instance, he suggests that if you received Christ as Savior when you were a child, you probably want to emphasize more the third point. But if you are saved uh, and can remember circumstances previous to salvation and then uh, at the time of salvation and the third point changes that took place, that is a very well-rounded testimony. And by the way, one reason why many times the use of testimony is more powerful with a person who was saved later in life than he was, than one who was saved after. I often will do this. I will talk to them about the fact that my parents were Christians and that I accepted Christ at a very early age. But when I was in ninth grade in high school, I came to a crossroads in my life where I didn't know whether I wanted to follow what my parents believed or not. And I came to a real crisis of examining the facts for myself anew and afresh and and, uh, finding that I had all kinds of things that I wanted to do. And uh, they didn't agree with what God wanted me to do. And so I began to argue with God. And the more I did, the more I wondered if I really was a Christian and so on. And I came to a real assurance of salvation when I was in the ninth grade in high school. Then what happened at that time was I read the Gospel of John, so on and so forth, came to grips with the reality of who Christ was, wept as I read the crucifixion story and realized it was personal to me and so on. And the changes have taken place well, there's a lot of things you can add there, all right? So there's lots of ways you can approach it depending on your circumstance. But I, I think that it's, it's important that you follow some of these things. Then, as we have in your notes, Gary adds this. Be specific. At least five things under each point. Give enough detail to, to arouse interest. Use some, but not many, scripture references. You're not preparing a sermon here. You have to differentiate. This is a personal evangelistic testimony. It's intended to be brief and to the point. It is not intended to use a lot of Scripture. If you're going to use a lot of Scripture, use it in connection with the third point to lead them on from there. Throw a few salvation verses in this circumstance surrounding my conversion, especially if you can remember the verse that the person used that was key to you in leading you to Christ. Then as well... Edit and rewrite it until it becomes very logical so that you don't have to grasp for particular words, but you have the logic of it in your mind as you share it with a person. Be sure that you define Christian terms. Watch out for things like the word. Uh, The the Christian life can be a stumbling block uh, unless you explain it. Uh, conversion, repentance, faith, grace, all of those words. They need explanations, simple explanations, hopefully, but don't use those words in your testimony unless you're also prepared to uh, explain what the words mean. And then read other sample testimonies, listen to others to find ways that you can improve yours, and then memorize it, all right? Now, let me show you a passage of Scripture. We'll spend a few moments on this, and then we'll go from there uh, to perhaps taking just a few minutes to see if you can give me some ideas as to some of these points in your own personal testimony and really draw you out a little bit here. In First Peter chapter 3, verse 15, one of the great 315s of the Bible, that, by the way, is another method that you can use. Learn the 315s of the Bible. Genesis 3.15, John 3.15 and 16, and First uh, Peter 3.15, a lot of good 3.15s, all right? That's a good address. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and be ready always to give an answer. Notice that word, answer. You might want to circle it in your Bible. To every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. God is commanding us, out of the midst of sorrow and suffering in 1 Peter 3, out of the midst of all of that, that you are to be always ready when someone asks, what happened to you? And so this is why an evangelistic testimony is always apropos, to have on the very tip of your tongue. This is simply a mechanical method of teaching you how to answer. The word answer is very, very important. And it is a word from which we get our word, apology. Apologia. Apologia, logia, word, apo, away from, the word away from, or in other words, a defense. It is a defense. Someone says, I see something in you. And you are, in a sense, defending that that they have seen by telling them that it is real, as far as your heart and life is concerned. Now this word apologia is used in a number of ways. I want to just... It's used eight times in this verbal form, in its noun form, and I just want to turn to them very quickly and just pick up where these words are so you get an idea of what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 9.3 1 Corinthians 9.3 Mine answer to them that do examine me is this... And then he goes on from there. Some were saying Paul was not an apostle. He now gives an apologia. He gives a testimony. He gives a defense. 2 Corinthians 7.11 2 Corinthians 7.11 For behold, this very same thing that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, apologia, A clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, and so on. Now here he's talking about godly sorrow. Worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. And he said you are able to defend yourselves concerning your sorrow in repentance and turning from uh, change of mind concerning the condition of the church that we find in First Corinthians, and therefore he said, "You have given your defense." Over in Philippians chapter one, Philippians chapter one verse seven, it says, "Even as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense, apologia." and confirmation or demonstration of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. You have experienced with me some of these things I've been going through as he wrote this in the prison in Rome. Verse 17. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for the apologia of the gospel, or the defense of the gospel. Second Timothy 4.16. sixteen. Second Timothy 4.16. At my first apologia, now notice, Paul is talking a lot about his apologia, his defense. We'll find out in a minute what that defense was. At my first apologia, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. I pray God that it may be may not be laid to their charge. Now, this word apologia is used generally in in reference to the Apostle Paul and his ministry, both in the book of Acts and in the epistles. I want you to turn now to Acts chapter 22, and we'll see what Paul's apologia was. Acts chapter 22. You will notice that Paul gave his testimony but couldn't finish it. He got the first two points out in chapter 22, and then he was interrupted. He's giving his apologia before the mob. Here it says, Men and brethren, fathers, hear ye my apologia, my defense, which I now make unto you. Couldn't be any question. Now, is he going to stand up there and teach them a course in systematic theology? No. Is he going to stand up there and as his defense, is he going to give them uh, a short course in uh, uh, epistemology? which is the defense, really, of the faith, uh, the, 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 the science of, uh, of, of learning process and so on. Is he going to do that? No. And what he's going to do? He's going to flat out give his testimony. That's all. That's his apologia. What he is saying and using as his apologia is simply, this is where I was, this is what happened to me, and this is where I am now. That's his apologia. He doesn't get too far in the third point with the mob. But I just want to follow through now and, and read a little bit of it. When they heard that he spoke in the Hebrew tongue to them, they kept more quiet, and he saith, I am verily a man who is a Jew, born in Tarsus. Wow, he starts right back at his birth. He's going to bring us up to snuff here. A city in Sicily, yet brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel. His education gets in there. And taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. His religion gets in there and was zealous toward God, as ye all are this day. He said, I don't doubt that you're like me. I was a religious zealot. Prove it. I persecuted this way, Christianity, unto the death, binding and delivering into prison both men and women. He was a nice guy. As These people would cheer him on at this point. That was the kind of thing they were looking to do. And also the high priest, doth bear me witness, go talk to the high priest if you don't think that's the way I was. And all the counsel of the elders, from whom also I received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them who were there bound unto Jerusalem to be punished. See, he really gives the whole background here. Now, in verse 6, he starts telling what happened to him. And it came to pass. That I made my journey and was come near unto Damascus about noon. Suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me. I fell to the ground, heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who art thou, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, and they heard not the voice of him that spoke unto me. They heard not the voice of him that spoke unto me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go into Damascus, and there shall be told of thee all things that I have appointed for thee to do. And when I could not see for the glory of that light being led by the hand of those that were with me, I came into Damascus, and one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews who dwelt there, came unto me and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see the just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarryest thou? Rise and be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord, or having washed away thy sins. And it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance. Now he's coming to what what happened subsequently. And saw him saying unto me, Make haste, get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they will not receive thy testimony concerning me. And I said, Lord, they know that I imprisoned thee, and beat thee in every synagogue, those that believed on thee. And when the blood of thy martyr Stephen was shed, I was also standing by, and consenting unto his death, and kept the raiment of them that slew him. And he said unto me, Depart, for I will send thee from here unto the Gentiles. And they listened to him until this word, Gentiles. And then lifted up their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for it is not fit that he should live. Well, that kind of interrupted his testimony. Now, you see, sometimes your testimony might get you killed. You have to watch that. That's a danger always. Now, you'll remember that he then turned to asserting his rights as a Roman citizen to try to calm the crowd down. They took him then to the council. Chapter 24, you remember that in chapter 24 he made a slight defense before Felix. He didn't really get very far with Felix, even though he attempted again to give his testimony. And then in chapter 25, he was before Festus. Again, Festus wasn't about to listen to very much that he had to say. But when he came before King Agrippa, he got his whole testimony in. And just before I walked out here tonight, I read the testimony And interestingly enough, Paul told his whole life history in all three points in three minutes flat. Isn't that interesting? In just three minutes, Paul gave his testimony. The basic teaching here is the same as what we just read a few moments ago in Acts 22. It begins in chapter 26 where... Uh, Paul asked him to speak for himself, and he begins in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa. And he goes on and talks a little further, giving a little more detail, because he's dealing with a different person here, giving a little background of the history of the nation of Israel and the relationship that it had in the past and so on. And and then uh, getting into this matter of what happened to him, beginning about verse uh, 12, And uh, where he starts telling about that, uh, which he did, in, uh, or what Christ did in bringing him to an end of himself. And then he starts talking to him again about the matter of God leading him to the Gentiles. And we start reading that in verse 17. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles, unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them who are sanctified by faith that is in me. That's a lot of gospel in one little verse. But he got it in there. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem, throughout all the borders of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent, Turn to God, do works fit for repentance. For these causes the Jews caught me in the temple and went about to kill me. Having therefore obtained help from God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come, that Christ should suffer, and that he should be the first that should rise from the dead, and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles." And as he thus spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're nuts. Much learning hath made thee mad. And he went on from there and talked, uh, got into somewhat of a discussion with King Agrippa. All right, now you see, Paul simply gave his, attest- his testimony. That is his apologia. There is no better apologia that you can give than share with people what you were before salvation. How Christ brought you to himself, and finally, how you've changed as a result of Christ coming into your life. Now, it, I, I just thought if we had time, and we don't really have much, but we ought to be able to do this very quickly. Who would volunteer to come up and in one minute tell us just what happened before they were saved? What they were like before they are saved, their, act- their attitudes and actions before they were saved. Who would just volunteer to do that? Come on now, somebody's got to do that, or I'll call on somebody. Okay. Why don't you stand up right there, right there, and just, just give it to us. What you were before, you accepted Christ. Great. Okay, now see what he did there was he, he gave us what he was before and quickly made a contrast. Now, you don't have to do it necessarily in the order that we gave you. Because at that point, then he should answer the question, if he were doing the whole thing, he should answer the question, all right, then what was it that led up to his salvation? But it's very good if you've got a good contrast in your testimony to tell what you were, and now what you've become, and then you can go to the other. Now, is there someone that will just simply give us briefly the circumstances led up to their coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior? Okay, come on, Mike, tell us. I, everybody's so bashful. We don't have time to wait. So <laughs> he was looking so eager down there. Okay, now there's, that's a good example of of just giving a few details to to create the interest, and then um, giving some scripture at the end that really kind of gives them something to hang their hat on. So you see, he moved into this business of what happened afterward, at least began that, by giving that verse, that the Spirit of God bore witness with his Spirit that he is a child of God. And that's good, because from that point, you can then elaborate with a person exactly how the, um, uh, how the Spirit witnesses and so on, all of these things. Now, uh, let's get a different person now and just to just tell us what changes took place in your life after you accepted Christ as your Savior? Just some, somebody that has something to share concerning that. Yes, Ralph? Well, <laughs> I bet your wife was happy, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> good <laughs> now Ralph, is, Ralph is, a, is a real master at this business of using his testimony and leading others to Christ and Ralph is, is, is really a soul winner and it's, it's terrific because he's, he has the background and, and so on uh, and, being, and being able to, to share what he was and all of the, the things and then how Christ uh, brought him to himself it's really exciting and, um, and then he just simply shares. You know, the, if you preach at a person who is a potential uh, candidate for salvation, you preach to them, um, they may appreciate it. But there's a lot of people who will not listen to what they consider to be theory. But they will listen to your personal testimony. I find that one of the biggest hindrances I have in being a witness for Christ to an unbeliever is the fact that I'm a pastor. And one of the first hurdles that I have to cover is I have to get this down to the place where they see me as a man. And constantly I'll tell a person, look, I'm just like you, I'm no different. The fact that I preach and so on and that I that I have devoted my life to helping people and to ministering the word doesn't make a particle of difference. I still have uh, the temptations that any man has, and so on and so forth. And I try constantly let them know that I'm human, that I'm real. Touch me, feel me, I'm just a plain person. But you'll notice that, that when you uh, begin to share Scripture with people, sometimes they say, what are you, a preacher? And that's a great point for you to say, oh no, I'm not a preacher at all. I'm, I, uh, you know, shovel coal for a living, you know? uh, But let me tell you, something happened to me that that changed my whole life. And then give your testimony. It's a great place to break in to giving your testimony. Now, what you want to do is not only get that down yourself. You should have that as as part of your kit bag. But then be able to teach another how to develop this as well. And uh, it wouldn't hurt a bit to go around and uh, meet uh, some people, like Ralph as an example and perhaps even get them to write out a one-minute or or three-minute testimony and exchange testimonies back and forth so that you can show them samples of various people and the way they would share their testimony. It's so much better to do it that way than it is to make up a testimony, a sample, or read something out of a book in the way of a testimony. It's so much better if you can say, listen, I know this man. And I just want to share with you what his testimony is. Read it in three minutes. Use that passage with the Apostle Paul. Show the points that he used. And then say, you don't want to just copy someone else because your testimony is unique to you. But just show him how it can be made up accordingly. Now, that's going to be a terrific tool. Not only for you, but for that disciple. And I think you'll find that God will greatly use it for his honor and for his glory. Let me just um, suggest to you that This would be a good assignment for you this week, just to do that very thing. And I think what we'll do in our session next week, I think we'll take time for a little more of this. Uh, The session next week will cover uh, something that I think we can cover rather rapidly. And so therefore, I think we'll take a little more time and see if we can draw out a few more testimonies so that you get an idea of what we're talking about, because we're out of time tonight. Let's bow in prayer together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your goodness and love and mercy to us. And we pray, Lord, that you would just undertake for the particular needs of each life. Lord, we, we think in terms of how you have bought us with your own precious blood, and then you've given us a new hope and new life. And we just want to share that with others. We want our life to overflow. May our apologia include just simply what you've done for us, May it be the most natural thing that we could possibly give a real clear apologia, defense of the gospel, using personal experience to show forth the glory of what Christ can do. Thank you, Lord, for these testimonies that you've given us in Scripture, and we pray that our testimony will be just as dynamic and will give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen. Go home and write your testimony. Good night.